I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Tegan, it's a Thanksgiving mailbag. Let's hit the mailbag, Chris. Let's hit the mailbag. We've got several. Thank you to listeners. Uh, in fact, several more came in last week after we made the most recent call for letters. We appreciate your listening. We appreciate your notes um, and feedback. Let's get on to letter number one is from Alex L. This came in a couple of weeks ago. He says, uh, hi, Tegan, question for the mailbag. With Biden's poor polling numbers and the Republican disarray in the House, how likely do you think it is that Trump wins the presidency and the Democrats flip the House? Then he adds, this is not a question, but a comment. I know that the election isn't for another year, but I think that Trump has a greater than 50% chance of winning. I really hope I'm wrong, but I think that in a presidential election, abortion won't be enough to save the Democrats like it has in the off-year elections. I also think more voters will think Biden being, quote, too old and senile, end quote, even though he's in better health and sharper than Trump, Alex L. adds, is worse than Trump's criminal trials. I think you've done a good job of covering both perspectives on election forecasting. However, it seems like many of your commenters are like Paul Ryan and think that there's no way Trump can win, even though he's doing better in the polls than in his previous two campaigns. This also reminds me of many Republicans I know who thought there was no way Trump could lose to Biden in 2020. Anyway, I think people need to set aside their preferences when making political predictions, signed Alex. So two things there. First, his question. Then, uh, interesting, Alex's insights about Trump's numbers and whether he has a better than 50% chance of winning, because since he sent us this note two weeks ago, we got the New York Times Siena polls. We got the NBC poll the other day. So a bit of evidence from polls showing that, yes, Trump very much could win. Why don't you start with whichever you would like, his question or his comment? Biden did something really bad this week. Do you know what that is? I mean, it was good. He celebrated his 81st birthday, but politically, good. maybe it was Are you bad. kidding? How did his advisors let him celebrate another birthday? He's 81 years old. I mean, how could they do that? Every poll is saying he's too old and they yeah. let him have a birthday. I just don't understand it. Bad consulting. Obviously, Joe Biden's age is correct, but I agree with Alex. I said, you know, when you look at Donald Trump and you look at Joe Biden side by side, it's hard to say that Donald Trump has more command or grasp of being president than Joe Biden does at this point. And I think that that split screen that you need showing one versus the other is going to be important. You know, it's one thing a year before the election that the campaign hasn't really started for Joe Biden yet. He's being president. Donald Trump is trying to win the Republican nomination, and he's obviously way ahead, and he's trying to shut it down before it even begins and have the RNC call off all the debates and all of that. But the campaign really hasn't started yet. So I don't want to get into the, this idea of who has a greater chance to win right now, you know, one year in advance. I think that what most people would probably agree is this election is going to be a lot closer than any of us would really like. I don't think it's going to be a landslide one way or another, even though you've got one candidate who's been charged with 91 crimes, four indictments. I mean, all of that. I, it's, it's remarkable to me that he stands where he stands at least one year out from the election. 
I can't really say who's going to win the presidency at this point. And can Democrats flip the House? I, I think Democrats can absolutely flip the House. They're only five seats away. There's been some gerrymandering, which actually may end up deciding some of this. There's been some new maps put in place in some Southern states, which have given Democrats an edge. There's a new map in North Carolina, which gives Republicans an edge. And in New York, there possibly would be a new map. And if Democrats have any say, that should help Democrats. But we don't really know how that all plays out yet. But with only five seats, it's obviously very possible for Democrats to do this. What's interesting to me is that it's unlikely that we'd have a scenario where one party wins the White House, another party flips the House, and another party flips the Senate. It's very unlikely that this, at least if you look at the last few elections, that this goes back and forth and that you have multiple parties flipping different houses or different branches of the government. So I think what we'll end up seeing is we'll end up seeing one party having a much better election night than the other party, and um, that will be reflected in who wins control of each of these chambers. That said, we're a year out, and so it's a little bit hard to tell. But what I can take from Alex's question is that it's going to be a close election. And I think it's far too early, as I've written, to pay a lot of attention to all of these polls and and all of these subgroups in the polls and what's happening. I think that they show an interesting snapshot of what the race is today. I think that the polls show two very well-known candidates facing off against each other. Both have great negatives. We know what their positives are. The only thing we can take away at this point is that this is probably going to be a close election. So I wouldn't say one has a slightly greater chance than the other at this point. My heart would say that Americans aren't so dumb to choose a candidate who seems so unbelievably ill-equipped to become president, and that's Donald Trump. I mean, and, and that's not me saying that. That's John Kelly, his former White House chief of staff. He said it today. Essentially, he said, it's unfathomable that any American can think based upon what he said, based upon what he's done, that he should be president again. And he's not the only one. He's got multiple defense secretaries who believe that, national security advisors, at least two national security advisors who believe that, his former attorney general who believes that, former defense secretaries who believe that. I mean, it's it's remarkable. These are aides who know Trump better than anyone else. They don't stand by him in his reelection bid. Several weeks ago, we thought this election could be the economy and the border versus democracy and abortion. Alex, in his comment, outlined it as abortion, thinking that would not be enough to save Democrats like it has in off-year elections, versus more voters thinking Biden will be, quote, too old and senile. These other issues, primarily Middle East, has seemed to push Ukraine and uh, other international affairs. I don't know if it's pushed it off the map, but um, it's certainly taken center stage. I think a proper looking at what's going on in the Middle East needs to connect Ukraine and Russia, needs to connect China, needs to connect, obviously, Iran. Everything at this point connects. But do you still feel like the framing that we talked about, economy and border versus democracy and abortion, holds true? I, I feel like the international affairs, and we should probably dedicate an episode to that at some point in the next weeks, it's got to be coming into play. I think that that framing is generally sound. But again, we're a year away from the election and which issues are more important when people are actually voting. And remember that 
voting takes place now, not on one day, but over several weeks before the election. So whatever issues are the most important issues at that time are important. So even though Alex suggests that he thinks abortion won't be enough to save the Democrats, like it has over the course of the last 18 months since the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court, there really is no evidence that abortion has lessened as an issue. You continue to feel like it will play such a role at the federal level. I mean, the whole point is this stuff getting pushed down to the states. You hear talk about which Republican presidential candidate might or might not sign an abortion ban. It seems pretty impractical, but maybe that would push things at the federal level. But you think that it still plays as much of a level of importance at the federal level as it does in these various state elections. I think it can. Obviously, when abortion is on the ballot as a referendum question, it impacts voter turnout in a different way than if it's just one of a handful of issues. But I think Republicans have done themselves no favors on abortion. Even Nikki Haley last weekend was essentially cornered by Bob Vanderplatz in Iowa uh, and asked, would she sign at a six-week abortion ban in her state if she were governor? And she said that she would. And that was immediately seen as ruining her progress that she had hoped to make on abortion and hoped to take a more moderate stance on abortion. It's not unlike what Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin tried to do. And he got slapped back in the elections, actually, when that didn't work in the, in the off-year elections. And so I do think that when abortion is an issue, Republicans are on the wrong side of this issue. Again, we're a year out from the election. Who knows how important that issue will be relative to the other issues that voters are weighing? Like you mentioned, you know, the trouble in the Middle East with the Israel and Hamas war, that's a big issue. And it's a big issue for a lot of voters. And that's now one of the issues that when we came up with our framework, wasn't one we were weighing specifically at the time. Things come up, yes, big issues yeah. come up. And it wasn't a big issue then. Now it is. I don't think the border's going away either. I don't think democracy is going away. Those are all going to be top issues. If there's one issue that I think the Biden campaign is going to address very seriously, it's the idea that Donald Trump is a threat, a grave threat to our democracy. And I think that we are going to be hearing an awful lot about that, not only from Joe Biden, not only from his surrogates, but also from others. And I wouldn't be surprised to see an awful lot of Republicans tapped to talk about that message. Cassidy Hutchinson, who's been on her book tour for a while, she had a really interesting quote earlier today. I think everybody should vote for Joe Biden if they want our democracy to survive. Granted, she was a low-level staffer in the White House working for Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, but the point of it is there are plenty of Republicans and former Republicans who see Donald Trump as a danger to our democracy and to our country, and I suspect the Biden campaign will have a plan to get them talking regularly. So I mentioned John Kelly earlier. I'd expect we'll hear from John Kelly again because I think that many people see Donald Trump as an increasing threat. They see his rhetoric on the campaign trail as increasingly dangerous. So I think that that will become a big issue. That said, the other issues which probably favor Trump, particularly the border, because the border seems to be one of these impossible situations, really impossible unless you have a bipartisan approach, which doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. The border will continue to be a big issue. And in even it's an issue here, as you and I both know, in New York State, which you wouldn't think that the, the southern border would become a big issue in New York. 
but it's impacting New York as so many migrants flood into New York City. Each of these issues will be weighed by voters as we get closer. I do think there are some important ones, and I do think others will fade to the background, but we just can't predict what those are going to be at this point. You know, you raised John Kelly, and I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I really wonder about the credibility who actually can sound the alarm, particularly on the Republican side. John Kelly is sounding the alarm, and you and I talked about this. Where were you when it was all going down? And there's so many people who are like that. Nikki Haley had no problems with Donald Trump while she was UN ambassador. One of the only ones, and I don't know why I've mentioned before, for some reason, his comments, I am believing he means them, is Chris Christie, some type of seeking redemption tour. Cassidy Hutchinson, that's great. I think she is authentic. But as you mentioned, I mean, she's a very, very smart, incredibly capable, it seems, junior staffer. You know, she's not a Republican leader by any stretch. And I just I wonder where on the Republican Party there is believable, trustworthy authority on the topic of Donald Trump is a risk to democracy or is a danger to democracy. Democrats will put that forward. And for people who believe that to be the case, those are credible sources for them. Kinzinger, Cheney, Liz Cheney, those would be people who have been pretty consistent, of course. I just don't know where the Republican leadership on that point comes from. I think that's a valid point. I keep envisioning an ad that the Biden campaign would have featuring one after the other of Trump cabinet members saying that they cannot vote for Donald Trump because they know him too well and they're casting their vote for Joe Biden. But when I think about some of those Trump cabinet members, Bill Barr is the one who comes to mind. When push comes to shove, Bill Barr essentially has said that he'll end up voting for Donald Trump again if he's the nominee. <laughs> and so how credible are his concerns about Donald Trump? And one thinks that given the passes that Bill Barr gave to Donald Trump when he was attorney general, how much of Bill Barr's commentary since leaving the administration is really just sour grapes and, and completely personal, a personal vendetta against Trump. It's hard to see who those people are, although I do think an ad, if you could find a half dozen of them to put together an ad saying that this is a vote for democracy right now, we cannot have Donald Trump in office, I do think it would be very powerful. And I do think, as you mentioned, Liz Cheney, would she would do that ad. And, she, she would uh, do that ad. But can I tell you, I think you need many more than a half dozen. I think you would need 20 or 30. Well, maybe I think there probably are that many. And so we'll have to see what the yeah. Biden campaign has up its sleeve. But I do I think- mean, I do think Ryan that, came out, if Paul Ryan came out with that right now, when you think of Paul Ryan, don't you just think, oh, wait, weren't you the guy who was against him before you were for him? And then you were really for him and you helped enable it? Aren't you that guy? Yeah, no. And we saw this week, Peter Meyer from uh, Michigan, the former Republican congressman who ended up getting forced out of his seat in a primary because he voted to impeach Donald Trump. He has now done two interviews in which he has essentially said that he will end up voting for Donald Trump because Joe Biden is far worse than Donald Trump, a man he voted to impeach from office for leading an insurrection. A lot of these voices are just not credible at this point. Relatedly, perhaps, Janice A. wrote us and said, The Washington Post reported that Trump and his allies are developing plans to use the federal government to punish opponents and, frankly, the rest of the country, given what they are reportedly looking at. Can you and Chris riff on the feasibility of these plans should the unthinkable happen in 2024? 
It certainly seems that a lot of what was reported would be unconstitutional, but the legal system moves slowly and the damage would be done. Thanks. Riff away. (laughs) Yeah, I think Janice is absolutely right. And and it wasn't just that Washington Post article. We've seen other articles since then. The New York um, Times pieces. Yeah, New York Times pieces as well, talking about exactly that, that Trump is planning his retribution. But keep in mind, that's what Donald Trump said. I am your retribution. This is his campaign. This is the campaign that he's running, and he intends to seek revenge. He has talked multiple times about using the Justice Department to go after his political enemies. He claims that Biden has kind of opened the can of worms and that now he's able to use this newfound power to go after his allies. So if you aren't paying attention right now, Donald Trump is saying exactly what he's going to do. I agree completely with Janice that it is extraordinarily dangerous. We've never seen anything like this in our history before. It really worries me. And I think every American voter needs to pay attention. I can riff as well on the feasibility of these plans. Very feasible, if not probable, given the reporting that we're hearing. Everything we're reading, which is, of course, based on sourced information, and I mean that both negatively and positively, sourced information sometimes is accurate and oftentimes, if not all the time, put out there by a source who has a personal or institutional reason for making that claim. And then it doesn't necessarily put their name on the record. So I think that any of that sourcing and sourced material needs to be certainly taken with a grain of salt. But Richard W. came at us with a letter from the mailbag. This letter came after the recent election day. I believe 18 Republican House members won in districts Biden won in 2020. Is it possible that a cabal of five or more might conspire to switch parties or go independent to create a functioning Democratic Party, friends, and a House that can function, and friends? It might be a good thing for them politically. It certainly would be good for the country. Sub-question, might they just be waiting for the George Santos saga to be played out? So Hmm. what do you think? A cabal of uh, party switchers to give the House to the Democratic majority? I'm willing to say that this might fall into that same category that we like to talk about, the uh, political junkies who like to think about a brokered convention, the thought of- Chris, we'll have an entire episode on uh, the likelihood of a broker convention sometime next year. Of course. But, you uh, but right now we can talk about this because, yeah, this what a power play this would be, right? You have five Republicans join together and switch and, and make Hakeem Jeffries the Speaker of the House. I mean, that would be an extraordinary story. The problem with that is getting five Republicans to do anything as all the Republican speakers that we've seen in recent years pretty hard (laughs) to get them to agree on anything. So I think the fact that it's five that would be needed is tough. It would be a lot more interesting question if it was one or two. And, you know, Richard makes a really interesting point because, you know, when he says, might they be waiting for the George Santos saga to play out? And as we record this, it is likely early next week that there will be a vote, another vote to expel George Santos. There are a lot of people who think that he may indeed be expelled. That would reduce the Republican majority by another seat. We also learned as of this recording that Representative Bill Johnson, the Republican from Ohio, he announced that he will step down to become the president of Youngstown State University. He says he will leave Congress in several months. He hasn't been any more firm about that, but you can bet that Speaker Mike Johnson is putting pressure on him to stay in that seat as long as possible. 
you know, if Santos were expelled, if Bill Johnson were to resign, then all of a sudden the margin is down to three seats. And the reason I say three is that it's actually been four seats recently because there's a vacancy in Utah, but that should be filled sometime early next week when uh, the results of the election and a Republican is expected to win that seat. But let's say lightning strikes and a Democrat wins that seat. All of a sudden, you could see a scenario where it does come down to just a couple seats, and you can bet that Hakeem Jeffries would promise the world to one or two of those Republicans who are in Biden districts to switch parties. But we can still dream about a brokered convention, can't we? You're not taking and, away and that, we right? and we can talk about it because that's what we do. That's what we do. I can't help but feel that on a feasibility scale, that the feasibility question that Janice raised feels greater than this feasibility. Though I certainly do appreciate Richard W.'s thinking about this, and it would be something, it would be a power play. What did you think about Mike Johnson's visit to Mar-a-Lago and uh, Donald Trump? Well, I think it's just another indication that Mike Johnson is trying to do absolutely everything he can to fortify his standing with the most conservative side of the Republican Party right now, because they are the side that is giving him the most trouble. And I think that if Republican lawmakers who are members of the House Freedom Caucus, for instance, if they see Donald Trump and Mike Johnson standing side by side, and they see Donald Trump embracing Mike Johnson, that that may cause them to think twice about trying to undermine Johnson. So I think that's what that's all about. I mean, he was in Florida raising money, which is also important, particularly considering the Republicans lost an entire month of fundraising as they kind of struggled to find a new speaker. I think that meeting at Mar-a-Lago was everything to do with his right flank and that he was doing everything he can to keep them at bay. And Donald Trump, we'll see. Donald Trump is not the most loyal politician in the world, and we'll see if it works. Brian LM007 wrote, <laughs> listened this week, you were asking about mailbag comments about what should we do differently if not the current primary system or the smoke-filled room? This question was from a couple of weeks ago. What about Alaska system? Limited results, but has resulted in reasonable, he put reasonable in quotes, election results with Mary Potola and Lisa Murkowski so far. So by Alaska system, Brian LM007 means the ranked choice voting, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. So, you know, obviously we were talking before about the problems with our current primary system, allowing voters to choose their party's nominees because only the most activist and typically ideological extreme voters are the ones who come out and vote in these primaries, that we end up getting nominees of the party that are towards the extremes of both Republican and Democratic parties. And therefore, because of gerrymandering, when only one party will end up winning that election, we end up electing the most extreme candidates. That's how we might get a Marjorie Taylor Greene in her Georgia district, or how we might get a Cori Bush in her Missouri district, is that only a Democrat or a Republican is going to win in those districts. And if the party nominates the most extreme candidates, then you're just going to have more extreme lawmakers serving in Congress. You know, And I kind of riffed before about the smoke-filled room being a better alternative, only in so far as the fact, if we go back to the time when we had party bosses choosing the candidates, they don't always get it right, but they seem to nominate people who at least have a fighting chance at fighting for that middle ground, which you have to in a general election. But I think Brian's point is a great one. Ranked choice voting is a really interesting system. It's been trialed in Alaska. It does seem to produce more moderate candidates. The problem is, is that you have to change the voting system. The people who are going to change the voting system are the politicians who are currently in power, who got elected with our existing voting system. 
We are going to close out this Thanksgiving mailbag with our old friend, Casper. You may remember a couple months back when we did our supersize mailbag episode, we read a question from Casper from Copenhagen regarding expansion of the house. You remember that conversation, right, Tegan? Uh, of course I do. Soon thereafter, we got a response from Casper himself, which I think, Tegan, bears reading now. Hello again. Thanks for taking up my question. Fun fact, I'm actually Casper from Borgen, but not the fictional one. He then had a point about regarding expansion of the house. I think we should go ahead and read it. I have a clarification. The idea is to keep the current 435 districts to avoid any redistricting and gerrymandering. Instead, you have each district elect three congresspeople. This should all but eliminate gerrymandering when it isn't winner take all, but instead three people getting elected. There are several systems for electing several people from a single district, and pretty much all of them are better than winner take all. Not sure if it brings anything new to the discussion, but just thought I'd clarify. That was a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago. But then Casper concludes, and speaking of Copenhagen, if any of you are ever in the neighborhood, please do let me know. And Casper then went on to even offer to help us find good sites to be able to record a podcast. And he signed it, best regards, Casper. Two takeaways that I have. One, we have the nicest listeners and obviously the smartest. And the best looking, Chris. And the best looking, which is very clear in an audio format. Two, I definitely look forward to recording a podcast in Copenhagen. I look forward to meeting Casper. And I am thankful that we have such kind listeners. I wish all of them and you a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Chris. I can't wait for those mashed potatoes. 